Hi, welcome to episode two of Breakout Culture, our rebranded weekly look at culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the cultural critic of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the non-critical associate editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. The idea that Charlotte is non-critical is absolutely <laughs> absurd. But anyway, we have a fabulous guest today. But before we introduce you to her, I'm delighted to announce a few more openings now that we're able to go out and see art in the flesh rather than just online. Well, yes. Now, the Barbican opens today with a major group exhibition about masculinity, exploring what it means and how it's expressed through film and photography from the 60s to the present day. Tomorrow, the Photographer's Gallery opens with two exhibitions, one of photographs by Jan Sofabeda and also Whitechapel with Radical Figures, a group exhibition of mainly figurative paintings from this millennium. So we'll be giving you weekly updates about gallery and museums opening. But now we are very honoured to welcome the woman who is radically changing the BBC ever since her appointment as the organisation's first ever director of creative diversity last October. She's a writer, a television broadcaster, a panellist and a woman of many talents. We're delighted to have you with us, June Sarpong, OBE. Hello, June. Hello. Hi, Ed. Hi, Charlotte. How are you both? Really well. Well, well, June, it is so lovely to talk to you again, as the last time we really spoke, other than yesterday, was when I wrote that profile of you for Country and Townhouse after you'd published your brilliant first book, Diversify, and things have just taken off stratospherically since then, haven't they? Oh, thank you very much. Well, that was such a fun interview. Um, we actually enjoyed ourselves, didn't we? <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun ride, and it's actually... It's kind of um, uh, uh, quite, what's the word? Not cathartic, but it's quite awesome that I'm doing this interview with Ed, who has been such a champion of these issues in our industry. And actually, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing happening now in terms of diversity and inclusion um, in the creative industries is because of the, the sort of foundation that you laid, Ed. So this is great. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, I... Uh... I feel very passionate about it. So I'm thrilled uh, to be talking to you. And I know we're going to talk about what you're doing uh, with the BBC, which is absolutely groundbreaking. But I always tell the story and sometimes it comes out badly and sometimes it comes out well. But it basically, when I was the culture minister, I, you know, I hold my hands up. I didn't take diversity seriously. It seemed very abstract. You had words like outreach and diversity. It didn't mean much to me and then I went to the National Theatre and I saw the Comedy of Errors where Lenny Henry was the lead and I looked around at the audience and it was different and there were lots of people of colour in the audience and the fact that that seemed different to me was telling in and of itself and I suddenly scales fell from my eyes and I suddenly thought I was, I was going to say it seems very easy but what I what I meant was I suddenly realised what the root was, which is if people can see someone who looks like them on stage or on screen, it makes a massive difference. So I, the only time I've ever done this as a minister, I asked Lenny Henry, you know, I never asked important people to come and visit me, but I asked Lenny Henry to come for a meeting. And we took it from there. And June, you were there at the beginning as well. Yeah, and it, and it was one of those where I think for many people in the creative industry that you know, had felt the sort of frustration and the, and the sense of, I don't know, lack of progression, having somebody like you make it a priority and make it quite clear, unequivocally clear to the heads 
of all of the major productions and um, broadcasters that you were serious about this just meant that there was a level of engagement that we had never seen before. Um, and I think that without it, we wouldn't be seeing some of the stuff that we're seeing happening right now. And what we're seeing happening is uh, what I saw in the news last October is that you were appointed the head of creative diversity at the BBC. And in, even better, you've got something a hundred million pounds to spend on creative diversity over the next three years. So that's what we want to talk to you about. Tell us about this incredible role you have. You're brilliant choice for the role by the way fantastic i make it sound like i make it sound like you're lucky to have the role the bbc is lucky to have you tell us about the role and tell us what you're going to do oh thank you very much um well it, in terms of the role um i don't actually commission um so my department works on helping the commissioners become a lot more inclusive in how uh, they uh, select the types of programs that the BBC makes, but also who's making those programs. And in terms of diversity and inclusion, we mean it in the broadest sense. So, you know, a lot of people tend to think that, you know, when you mention those two words, it's maybe gender or, or bane, but we're looking at sort of three underrepresented groups. So social economic diversity in terms of what we do for our working class creatives um, and also BAME and disability. And those are the three areas that I think most broadcasters struggle with. Um, and so that's my remit. And, and how it works is we literally work with all of the creative teams and suggest talent to them, um, suggest places for them to access talent, but then also help to create a strategy in terms of what the BBC's creative uh, uh, inclusion strategy should be. So this 100 million um, is part of that. And it's not new money, it's repurposed money uh, that will look to uh, create content that really focuses on those three underrepresented groups. Well, already we're seeing so much more diverse content there. You know, we've had noughts and crosses from Mallory Blackman's books. And of course, everyone's talking about the extraordinary I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to. Um, I've been watching it with my 16-year-old daughter who says it's the, the, the dialogue is the most close thing to real life she's ever seen on television. And on the 22nd, we'll be able to see Daniel Henry's film, Race Revolution, Life After George Floyd, obviously on the impact of Black Lives Matter um, on Britain. That's just the start. So, June, tell us what else we can look forward to in the coming months. Because, as you say, the when I was, you know, banging on about diversity, we, we had lots of kind of uh, worthy reports from the BBC and Channel 4 and the like. But what is different now is there's money. So tell us what's going to happen in the future. What can we look forward yeah, to? Yeah, of course. So a lot of um, the programmes that, Charlotte, you mentioned um, have already been commissioned. So those programmes uh, were underway uh, regardless. So you know, that, that, that's not um, being impacted by this new um, uh, um, money. But what is super exciting in terms of the sort of new content that's coming is there's lots of stuff that also uh, has been commissioned um, in terms of um, Famalam's coming back. I'm sure your daughter loves Famalam, which is amazing. And what Famalam has done is it's given young, diverse, 
creatives, writers, directors, an opportunity that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And that that series is so outside of the box and has brought in a really engaged and excited young audience, a kind of young audience that's actually been quite hard for the BBC to access traditionally. We tend to access them quite well in some of our sort of radio um, uh, portfolio, but definitely not as much um, in terms of our actual on-air content. So really excited about that. Um, We've got a new uh, series of rap game that's coming back. Um, which is going to be great. Um, Afwa Hirsch is doing a series for us um, for uh, BBC Four. And then we've got the disability monologues, um, which is coming uh, in November. But I think even if you look at the sort of success that we had with Ordinary People, there is an example of how you can um, create and support talent new talent, but also tell the kinds of stories that will connect with a really broad audience, but perhaps from a different part of um, society that, you know, often doesn't have a sort of positive portrayal. So when it's done right, it can be done really well and reach a really broad audience. I mean, ordinary people is the biggest... Normal people, normal people. Normal people, yeah, not apologies. Normal people is the highest ratings we've had in, in years. And again, it shows if you are inclusive, and by inclusion, we mean it in a broad sense. As I say, people often think we're only looking at BAME or we're only looking at some of the other underrepresented groups. But I think social economic diversity is something that is a, a real problem. Can you tell us a bit about small acts? Because I gather... um. You and Ed both went to see Letitia Wright um, before she was Letitia Wright, if you like. (laughs) Yes, I remember it. Weirdly, I uh, went because a friend of mine called Faith Alibi was in the play. This was the one at the gate, wasn't it? Uh, I went to see Faith Alibi. I can't remember if I, I think I asked you to come with me, June. But, um, yes, you did. And, you did. Uh, yes. I mean, Faith uh, was a constituent of mine. She lived in Didcot and she wrote to me out of the blue and said, um, she was writing to her MP, said, I've got a place at drama school. Can you um, can you pay for me to go? <laughs> uh, which, of course, I couldn't. But I did end up, I sort of wrote supportive letters to the drama school and she ended up, on, on her own merit, of course, getting a scholarship to go to drama school and I've sort of followed her career ever since and I have to say again I don't know whether this sounds too controversial but I've often spoken to her I've lost touch with her a bit but I've often spoken to her about um what it's like uh to be a woman of color trying to get acting jobs and she said one very telling thing to me which I thought I think was quite unfortunate which she, you know she said she'd never been ever asked to rehearse in her own accent she'd always been asked to sort of put on a African accent or, or, or whatever. So again, I think there, you know, things are changing, but there is still, uh, it's still far too. We've still got a long way to go. And and the funny thing about that that afternoon, Charlotte, was you know we went to see this amazing play, which was actually written um, by Denai, who is in, um, uh, who was in Black Panther, and so so she so she um, wrote that play that Letitia Wright was in and we went to see it and, you know, Letitia was a superstar, just she was so brilliant in it. And I remember going behind backstage and she was so excited to meet us, wasn't she? That's right. (laughs) I've got, 
I have to root out the photograph, you know, before they were famous photographs. I can put on my wall. <laughs> and then, and then, literally, um, you know, nine months later, she lands a lead. Yeah, Denai Gurara, who's the superstar, wrote that play. So, so nine months later, she gets as one of the leads in Black Panther and becomes this international superstar. Amazing. So now she's coming back in Small Acts. Can you tell us a bit about that, June? Of course. So um, Small Acts we're incredibly excited about. Um, it's uh, by uh, the wonderful Steve McQueen with an all-star cast, John Boyega, Letitia. I mean, this thing is unbelievable. But the thing that I'm most excited about, why I'm so excited about this production, is the way it's been produced. So it's a whole different model um, in terms of talent development so Steve was adamant that he didn't just want to sort of hire um experienced um behind the camera talent he really wanted to create a pipeline for new talent from disadvantaged backgrounds to give them the kinds of opportunities that they wouldn't get otherwise um and so he set up a whole training scheme on it and so each um senior position had a junior position attached to it um, and both uh, BBC, we paid for it alongside um, out of the production budget. And so what's happened off the back of that series is there's a whole new pool of talent that can now go and work within the industry. And so what we're looking to do with that model is expand it out so that it's not just about um, the talent that's actually working on the shows, but it's also about the impact that we have on the communities that the shows are filmed in. Um, so I think using Steve's model, we'll be able to do some really um, important work going forward with many of our productions. I think that's so important because um, it's it's kind of boring nuts and bolts, but it has as big, if not bigger, an impact in casting. I remember talking to the producer of a major, he produces major, major films, and he says that he's committed to diversity. And I said, well, why don't you set aside a budget? that will make sure that the people you want to reach and have a, help have a career in film get the support they need. Because what they forget, for example, is that you, you, know, you might hire someone to work on your set, but they can't afford to get there. You know, they need to be on the set at five o'clock in the morning, which means they need to get a taxi. It's going to cost them 50 quid to get there. And people forget that there's all this stuff around uh, the actual decision to hire people that people like him obviously have and people like me indeed, have absolutely no clue about and don't think through. Exactly, exactly. And then often, you know, with, with when you're in that kind of um, situation, it can be embarrassing to actually say, I can't. Exactly. So you just take that out of it and you make sure that, you know, talent from poorer backgrounds are actually catered for across the board. So, yeah, we're super excited about looking at that model and really expanding it out, particularly when we're working in regions outside of London um, and in communities all around the country. And, you know, there's a lot of some, you know, there's a lot of, of our shows that are filmed outside of London that are returning series, which means that you could have real impact because you're in those communities year on year. So, yeah. Oh, well, fantastic. Now, before you go, June, can you tell us about your books? Now, as you know, I absolutely love Diversify. Well, you know um, I love I was... your writing, Charlotte. I love oh. your articles. And uh, I, I remember when we met and we were talking babies and everything. So, <laughs> And now she's 16. <laughs> 
Oh, well, I was really impressed, as you know, by how practical it was. And I gather your new book, which comes out in October, is called The Power of Privilege. And it's full of practical steps as to how white people can respond to racism and do something about it. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, of course. I think, you know, one of the things, so it's funny, a few years ago, um, when Diversify came out, actually not long after you and I met, um, I was asked to lead a session at a sort of a big corporate um, around diversity and inclusion. And so we had a sort of um, D&I dinner. And I was sat at a table um, with uh, a bunch of senior execs. And there was one of their sort of young, promising stars. And he was there with his wife. And so we were talking about D&I and all the usual sort of uh, issues around that. I could tell he was quite uncomfortable. And the thing with television is you get good at reading people. And so I could just sense there was something not quite right. Anyway, so I asked him and I said, are you okay? And he didn't say anything. And I said, I can tell you're a bit uncomfortable with this conversation. I'd really love to get to understand why, because obviously that will help me do my job better. And so he said, you know, what I want to know is what's the place for me in this conversation? And sometimes I feel that I'm on trial for being a white man. And he said, how can we move from accusation to conversation? And that really stuck with me. And I thought, my goodness, he's so right. And from that point onwards, you know, anywhere I went, I would have so many white people coming up to me saying, well, what can I do? I want to be more impactful in terms of helping to create change, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously George Floyd happened and it just made sense. You know, I'd been looking, I'd been toying around with this type of book and I'd actually written a few chapters already. And my publishers were, they weren't quite sure was the time right. And then this happened and they were like, you remember that book you had? And I was like, yes. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> I like, we really think there's a need for it now. Um, and, and, and I always believed there was a need for it anyway because of what people were asking me. Um, and so it's very prescriptive, very practical, and it's really tools on how, how to be an effective ally. Um, and looking on where you are on the ladder of inclusion, you know, so i.e. what a privileged white man can do is perhaps different to what a white woman can do and so on and so on. And it takes into account class and all of the other nuances. So it's not in any way saying that the lived experience of all all white people is the same, not at all. But it is saying that there are elevated characteristics in our society. And if you have those then there is something else that you can do to help level the playing field. And, and, and that's really the sort of crux of the book. And on top of that, you've written a memoir, which no, I've read about I haven't written a that yet. weeks ago. No, yeah, it's been announced. You... No, that, that hasn't been written. I haven't even started that yet. That's, that's oh. end, end of next year. <laughs> give me, give me a minute, please, Ed. <laughs> God, you've made me feel like such a slouch. I better get on. I've written about 8,000 words in my memoir. Well done, get on. well done. More than me. <laughs> You'll have to give me the um, the name of your agent. Yes, anyway, please. It's called, I think the working title is The Only One in the Room, which yes. you need to know explanation, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're unique in many ways, June, and you're doing an amazing job and we're so pleased to have had the chance to catch up it's really wonderful and we've been i've been watching uh from afar and i'm so pleased at all the progress that's been made and the kind of it does feel it does feel like we've turned the corners i say i still think we've got a long way to go but it does feel 
like we turned a corner. Yeah, I, I really agree. And, and just to say huge thank you to you both for being such effective allies and real allies. And I think that actually it's so important to celebrate people who are demonstrating what that change can look like. So thank you both. You're a star. Thank you, June. Thank you so much. So lovely to chat to you both. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the wonderful June Sarpong. You'll find all details of everything we've talked about at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our other podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to top designers. We'll be back again next week with episode three of Breakout Culture. But for now, thank you very much for listening. Spread the word. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>